Walking distance is supported by Gossamer Gear. So there I was at Kit Lake on Avalanche Divide in the Grand Tetons. The wind was up and my Gossamer Gear trekking pole tent, The One, barely moved. At only 17 ounces, The One is bomb-proof with loads of room inside to sit up, store your gear, and stay dry and safe from the bugs. And Gossamer Gear Gorilla 50-liter ultralight backpack is roomy and organized enough for all I need, plus a week's worth of food. From trekking poles to hiking umbrellas, tents and backpacks, Gossamer Gear is some of the highest quality lightweight gear out there. And as a listener of Walking Distance, you can score 15% off your next order at gossamergear.com. Just use the code WALKINGDISTANCE. Gossamer Gear. Take less. Do more. Trail experiences are nearly infinite because at the very end of the day, what is common amongst all trail experiences is that they're highly personal. So I think perspective matters. I think that motivation for being out there matters. I think what you're looking for matters. And I think in my case, I wasn't really looking for a tribe. I wasn't looking for someone to acknowledge my identity. What I was looking for was for the people around me who are also on this journey and who happen to be in the communities around the trail to just simply let me have my trail experience. From the trek, this is Walking Distance, a show for hikers, trekkers, trampers, and wanderers that proves any place worth seeing can be reached by walking there, and that it's even better when you carry all you need in a backpack. I'm Blissful Hiker. Shaolin Desai is a triple crowner. That's a hiker who's completed end-to-end all three of the major national scenic trails in the United States, the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, and the Continental Divide Trail. Shaolin also holds a special title as the first person of South Asian descent to accomplish this feat. In addition, he identifies as queer and found that the trail and the outdoors in general offer lots of challenges for people like him. Since completing the trail, he's found his calling with the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, serving first on its board of directors and now as the vice president of advancement. He helps to identify ways the trail can make the demographics more diverse and reflect the diversity of the regions the trail passes through. To do this, he led the launch of a pilot program at the ATC of affinity groups, providing structure, support, and opportunities for underrepresented communities and like-minded groups to hike, volunteer, and give back to the trail. So it felt absolutely natural to ask Shaolin to talk with us today about the subject of fitting in on the trail. Although I'd have to say in a lot of ways, Shaolin has always fit in on the trail, an early passion of his, and one he describes as almost an addiction. I got introduced to the outdoors the way a lot of young boys um, actually got introduced back then, which was through Boy Scouts. And my dad was the assistant den leader. And the first trip that we took was to this really popular hiking trail in central Massachusetts called Mount Wachusett. In the summer months, a lot of people like to go for a quick hike. You know, but when you're with a whole den full of kids, it's not so much a quick hike as it is a big production. I, I mean, this is probably one of my earliest memories being outdoors. But I remember just thinking, you know, it'd be really great if I didn't have this entire circus around me. And I think that would probably be like my 
Madeline moment where I was like, aha, this is for me. This is what I want to do. From there, I was just like, you know what? Two days on the trail, it's great for like a quick fix, but there's a deeper itch that I need to scratch. And I wanted to be out there for not just days at a time, but months at a time. So I, I bit the bullet and I said, all right, you know what? Let's go down to Springer. Let's undertake this journey. I wasn't too hesitant about it. I wasn't nervous. I just was curious if I had the mental stamina because I knew that I had the physical stamina to make it out there. Um, and I, you know, like I, I, I talk about through hiking as if it's narcotic, you get hooked right away. And so from there, I just kept hitting up trail after trail when I had a couple of months available to me. You identify as a queer man. How did you find your tribe on the trail? And maybe how did you find them before you started the trail? I think the the short answer to that question is I didn't. The trail family that I actually finished with, they they were a big group. There was, I believe, nine people in it. And we were a hodgepodge of folks. And there's only one other queer person in that group. And she didn't really think of herself on the trail as being a queer woman. She just thought her of herself as being a through hiker. And I pretty much similarly felt the same way. So that idea of having a tribe or having a group around you that you share identities or interests with wasn't necessarily the case for me. I just really liked the people that I was around with because they were smart and funny. And because we all kind of found ourselves to be in the same situation, making ourselves, making our ways up the trail. Did you ever have any encounters on your through hikes that were disturbing or dangerous? I would say that there were a couple of disturbing instances. Um, you know, if you're a guy on trail and you're out there long enough, you, you grow a face rug. <laughs> <laughs> Women grow them on their legs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or as one of my friends called it, face insulation. So yeah. <laughs> and there was one guy who was a hiker who I met at a hostel. And he's like, you know what? Now that you got your trail beard, you should just go by the trail name Osama bin Hiken. Mm. And I was like, yeah, you might think that's funny. You might think that there's a bit of levity in what you're saying, but it's also incredibly offensive. And that happened again on the PCT. One of the trail volunteers who was helping with the hiker feed had a megaphone. And I was with a hiker who was of Mexican um, heritage. And we were standing in line waiting for our meal. And he looked us up and down and he said, come on up. I'm sure that you guys want to grab some food after all that terrorizing. And I, was, and I was like, what? Excuse me? And he's like, yeah, you look like a terrorist. You look like an Osama bin Laden. And I was like, okay, you might find it funny. You might think that there's a bit of levity, but the fact that you're saying this through a megaphone, literally a megaphone, is incredibly disturbing. So like in those cases, yeah, that's disturbing. But in some cases, it's actually straight up dangerous. I was hiking with another uh, person of color on the CDT, and he has Filipino um, ancestry. And we walked into Lima, Montana. And when we checked into one of the motels there, she advised us not to go to the bar. And we asked her why, you know, like we really wanted to just grab a beer like most through hikers want uh, when they get into a town. And she said, it's just not a good idea. And, she, and then we're, we were like, hey, we just want to know why. Because if there's something that we need to be aware of in this town, then we'd like to know. She goes, read between the lines. They don't want people like you at that bar. Sometimes it's only when that 
sense of danger is articulated to you by somebody who sees you, looks at your identity and says, you are absolutely going to be a moving target in specific spaces that should be safe to you in a way that's safe to white hikers. You know, for many people, those instances can color your entire trail experience. For me, I just kind of packaged it in a box and tried not to let it impact the journey that it was taking and how positive it was otherwise. I was going to ask you about um, the affinity groups. You're the first person to introduce the idea of affinity groups for the Appalachian Trail Conservancy. Why is this important and how does it work? Yeah, you know, the affinity groups were something that I, I started talking about with the Conservancy when I finished my thru-hike. Um, I, I was lucky enough to be invited to join the ATC's board of directors in 2017. And at that time, Julie Juckins, who's the Conservancy's Director of Education and Outreach, was doing a fantastic job of looking at the various ways that the Conservancy could engage younger and more diverse audiences by expanding its programming. And one of the key things that she's been doing for years now is really looking at the ways that people with shared identities and interests can help their own communities connect to the resources that are found on the trail, and even to things like shared stewardship and other opportunities to connect to the outdoors. So when I first walked into the door as a volunteer on the board of directors, you know, I talked to Julie about the various ways that we could start to unite people with shared interests and, and um, identities to kind of work within their own communities as entry points to the Appalachian Trail. And the first group that we started with was a remarkable group. They've grown so significantly over time um, called the Wild East Women. And, you know, some of the stories that I heard along the trail, especially amongst the volunteers, were a little bit disturbing to me. A, a story that a volunteer told me, a female volunteer told me a while ago, was that she was carrying a tool up to um, a work site on the Appalachian Trail and a male member of the crew told her, um, hey, honey, I'll carry that for you. It looks like you can't really handle that. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, and, and talk about just like a, it's a condescending comment. It smacks of misogyny, you know, like, and, and just that it kind of doubts the capability of somebody who's been a volunteer for decades at this point. So, you know, I was like, hey, let me ask you a question. Would you have felt a little bit safer and a little bit more welcome if you had walked into the stewardship of the trail through like an all-female crew or through a space where other women were there to support you and you didn't find yourself to be the only woman on this trail crew? And she said, absolutely. If there were other women around, I think that I would have felt more comfortable calling him out and telling him exactly why that was the wrong thing to say. I think that I would have found my allies. I think that I would have been able to articulate my thoughts and find sympathy and empathy in that situation. So after that conversation, I kind of stepped back and, and talked to Julie about figuring out if there was an opportunity for the ATC to support the creation of a women's affinity group. And that's how Wild East Women came to be. So that group has been a working model of how we want to approach affinity groups writ large. And we're finding that affinity groups exist outside of ATC too. And we've been connecting with them. So for example, Outdoor Afro is an affinity group. Latino Outdoors is an affinity group. You know, 
Um, brown people camping is an affinity group. So we're finding that when you carve out spaces where you find people who look like you, have the same perspectives as you, and um, are there to support you and provide you allyship because they share something with you, that you have an easier way of connecting to spaces like the AT and other trails and other outdoor spaces. Is there ever a risk, though, that breaking into affinity groups kind of furthers prejudice and fear of the other? Yeah, you know, that that was a question that came up earlier on. And the affinity groups don't work in a vacuum. So that's the important thing is that almost all of them partner with organizations like the ATC in order to connect back to other groups and, and other people. So, you know, like the, the women's work days, for example, those women's work days were meant to introduce women to stewardship of the trail and to impart to them basic trail maintenance skills. But now these, these women that participated in these work days and skills workshops are coming back to their own clubs in their own region and connecting back to them. So diversity, equity, and inclusion, they're just words that are on everyone's lips right now, really in just about everywhere, every corporation, company, um, you name it. Uh, what do you think are the biggest hurdles? I mean, you've kind of addressed this with the affinity groups, but what are the biggest hurdles as far as trails and the outdoors now? It, it's funny. We we actually call it at ATC, we call it justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, because I think that the justice piece to me is, is, is a very important part of this because you have to work towards something and we're working towards a just trail space. And then you have to ask yourself, what does that even mean? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that when we talk about justice, what we're talking about is creating a space that's imbued with the values of equity, diversity, and inclusion. And for us, you know, some of the, the, the hurdles that we've been able to see by, by even having these conversations, number one is that there really is a, is a tough time for a lot of people in the trail space with just acknowledging that the problem exists, right? And one of the important things that I think has to happen with diversity, equity, inclusion work is that you can't solve the problem if you don't name it. So if there's people in your ecosystem who aren't willing to accept the fact that, yes, there are barriers for participation or that this space is not always safe, not always welcoming and not always inclusive to people of color, to women, to people who identify as queer or what have you, then you're never going to do the work to actually make it safe, welcoming and inclusive. So that's number one is acknowledgement. Number two is I think that sometimes you work off of our own internal perspectives. And when that perspective is dominated by a singular demographic, the other perspectives that you're trying to bring into your decision-making and management of these trail spaces are often left out. So, you know, like when you walk into, for example, a board meeting or a trail club and you find mostly male, mostly white, mostly older voices dominating the conversation, where is the conversation for younger and more diverse people to step in and say, you know what, I might disagree with that perspective because I'm coming at it from a different viewpoint. So that's number two. And I think the last piece of it is that many people think that if you just start talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, that you can jump right to action and that you can start approaching this as you approach any other work. But what we're working against is centuries of domination by a singular demographic. So you can't expect results overnight. You have to put yourself in a position to be uncomfortable and you have to reconcile yourself to the fact that this is going to take a lot of time 
that there's going to be friction throughout the process. And that what you're working toward is something that is, you're, you're kind of flying the airplane as you build it. To me, it's not about being, it's not about the work. It's not about the fact that it's a goal. What it is, is it's a culture and it's a value system that you're trying to lay over this entire trail space. And it's going to take a really long time for us to get there. Shaolin Desai, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much. Shaolin Desai is Vice President of Advancement at the Appalachian Trail Conservancy. Along with helping launch the affinity groups, his work inhabits the external facing part of the ATC, including development, visitor experience, membership, communication, and education. It's so gratifying to talk with him because he's clearly excited about his work. As he told me, he's challenged, passionate, and enthused every single day about what he does. A few weeks ago, I spoke with one of his colleagues at the ATC, Andrew Downs, and he shared the paradigm shift that's going on over there with regards to hikers and not just creating a space for their enjoyment, but encouraging a shared sense of stewardship of the trail. In many ways, the energy that's put into creating safe and welcoming environments on the trail and the paradigm shift into stewardship mirrors the work that needs to be done throughout our country to ensure that we all feel like we belong. Coming up in a moment, you'll hear from a 2015 PCT thru-hiker named Air Paris, who identifies as queer and non-binary. They have a bit of a different take on fitting in and how to be more inclusive, and discovered over the years that it was less changing how we speak to people we feel are marginalized and more about how we understand them. My thinking at the time was like, if we could just tell people of color, if we could just tell immigrant families, if we could just tell women and girls, like, you belong here, this is for you, you should feel included, um, we can teach you how to do it, that that would be a really good thing. But I keep seeing again and again that, in fact, all of these groups are already enjoying the outdoors, just not the way, maybe, that I thought at the time. I'm Blissful Hiker, and you're listening to Walking Distance from The Trek. Walking Distance is supported by Garage Grown Gear, your one-stop online shop for ultralight gear from over a hundred small startup and cottage outdoor brands. Everything from quilts and packs to accessories and meals from makers including Catabatic, Lone Star Ultralight, Bear Vault, Enlightened Equipment, Nomad Nutrition, Six Moon Designs, Goosefeet Gear, and one of my faves, Kula Cloth. They offer free shipping for orders over $20. And here's a really cool deal. First-time customers get 10% off using the code DISTANCE10. That's 10% off your first order using the code DISTANCE10. Support the little dudes, shop intentionally, and get 10% off at garagegrowngear.com. This is Walking Distance from the Trek. I'm Blissful Hiker. Air Paris completed a PCT thru-hike in 2015. They went on to work for REI as a blogger, oftentimes writing about inclusiveness on the trail and advocating for historically marginalized communities looking to fit in in the outdoors. They started their hike articulating a fairly straightforward identity. 
So I was on the PCT in 2015, and um, I started my hike with my then partner. Um, and so we were a visibly queer couple. I think um, we looked like a lesbian couple to outsiders. Um, and I think also later on top of that is that my then partner, who is still a really good friend of mine, um, also was um, like fat as well. So um, being visibly queer and um, visibly like not athletically shaped um, definitely informed, I think, interactions that people had with us. What does it mean to be queer on trail? I mean, you talk about being visibly queer. What does that look like? Well, I think being queer probably means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Like I use that to mean lesbian, bi, transgender, questioning, um, intersex, uh, two-spirit. Like there are many things that I consider under the term queer. Being queer on trail for me was um, being an outsider. I think being um, visibly queer is a little bit of a challenge when you're moving through um, lots of different spaces. But I think for me as a city dweller, when I go into rural spaces that I'm unfamiliar with, um, I think there's a level of um, wariness. Also, like I made a very conscious decision before going on trail to look as um, cis and straight passing as possible. So I grew my hair out longer and I dyed it pink and I kept dyeing it um, on trail so that I could be easily identified as a non-threatening woman to other people. <laughs> So I think I have like a huge amount of privilege because I can move in and out of spaces. Um, when I was with my partner, Boomerang, who like two outsiders looked very much like a quintessential butch lesbian. When you're holding hands um, as two people who look like women, it can be dangerous depending on where you are. Yeah, I can imagine. Is that the reason that you decided to try to look cis as you describe was for safety? Yes, I think for me, I was raised to be a cis woman. I um, went through girlhood as a girl. So fitting in into like hetero cis spaces is um, something that I was trained on from uh, my childhood on. So I think that that's a very comfortable role to play. And I think that that is the most um, safe role for me to play, um, especially at the time. Now, having um, physically transitioned, um, it becomes trickier. I think like a lot of what I do now when I'm in the outdoors is figure out who people think I am, what gender they're placing me in. And I try to fulfill whatever role based on things that I pick up because being the gender that people assume you are is a lot safer than um, surprising people. Yeah. Did you ever have any experiences that you would consider dangerous or, or disturbing? Nope. I'm very lucky. I did not experience any feelings of danger on that trip. Mm. So your tagline is, words have the power to change the world. I use mine for forces of good, sincere, sometimes snarky. <laughs> what do those words um, mean to you? I grew up as a huge reader. My grandmother instilled in me the love of words and especially written word. And 
I leaned into that as I was growing up. And so I studied um, philosophy in college and um, then went into the workforce and found myself as a copywriter and then blogger and then journalist. So I truly believe that um, communicating with others in written form is a really incredible way to make changes happen in the future. One thing that I think of is um, like in my own personal life, I grew up only knowing the pronouns um, she, her and he, him. And on trail, uh, I met someone who used they, them pronouns. And it was really uncomfortable for me to learn how to use they, them pronouns. Uh, and then once I realized that that was an option and that it connotated a different way of moving through the world, um, a ability to say that you don't necessarily need to live in um, a binary in terms of gender. It really opened up my eyes and allowed me to lean into a non-binary identity. And so, I mean, that's just one thing, like two tiny pronouns um, have completely shaped uh, my last five years of my life. And so I think like when those kind of tiny changes are possible just with word choice, obviously saying many more words has an ability to change the world even more. Tell me about your advocacy journalism for REI. Uncommon Path is the name of the um, publication. Do you choose your own topics? Are they suggested to you? Which um, matter to you the most? Yeah, I actually um, worked full-time at REI for three years, uh, almost right after I got off the PCT. And actually, it was pretty magical. I think um, blogging every day on the PCT sort of resulted in that job. So I was very lucky. So the stories that meant a lot to me were two types. One is very silly stories. I really like when there's more joy in the world. So I did a lot of listicles. I also wrote for social for REI at the time. And so I loved asking our social audience about their favorite packs or something or their um, silliest fails in the outdoors. And of course, talking about historically marginalized communities um, and their place in the outdoors obviously has a, a huge place in my heart as well. Why do you feel marginalized communities need advocacy to enjoy the outdoors or to get on the trail? Well, I think that actually my thinking has um, shifted a little bit now that I no longer work in the outdoor industry. I thought, like as we talked about earlier, that just telling historically marginalized communities that they were welcome in the outdoors um, was like good in and of itself. And I thought it was really important to welcome people who didn't see themselves in the outdoors and to tell them, like, you're welcome here. You should come. It's really fun. Um, try it. You'll like it. But I keep seeing again and again that, in fact, like indigenous communities, black communities, women and girls, um, disabled people, like all of all of these groups are already immigrants are already enjoying the outdoors, just not the way maybe that I thought at the time or that the outdoor industry <laughs> thought of things, you know, maybe folks aren't buying, um, you know, fancy packs and shoes. They aren't 
maybe backpacking necessarily, but like they're out there. Um, Queer people have been out there also. And so I don't think that there actually needs to be advocacy. I don't think that me as a privileged white person coming from a middle-class background needs to tell people that they're welcome in the outdoors. Um, They know that they've been there. Um, What I keep thinking about now is like, how can I expand my definition to include the people that are already out there? And at the same time, like uh, work towards ensuring everyone has what they need and their basic necessities met. So if they do want to go backpacking, they can. They can afford to go and buy the fancy backpack and shoes and get out there. So I think that my priorities have very much shifted from simply telling stories about like cool people doing the outdoors the way that I do the outdoors and working on other things. Air Paris identifies as a non-binary queer person. They told me that these days they work in product marketing for a tech company in Seattle to pay the bills and volunteer for a neighborhood mutual aid project to help people pay their bills and get enough food to eat. This conversation about fitting in on the trail is definitely an evolving one. As Shalin Desai pointed out, we're flying the airplane as we build it. It's less about simply doing one thing in communication and education, and then this will be the end result, as it is about changing our mindsets and the culture around our differences and maximizing our shared desire to enjoy and use the trails and the outdoors. I certainly want to hear your thoughts on the subject. You can always contact us at walkingdistanceatthetrek.co. But before we go, Air challenged my concept of what it means to be a hiker on the trail, not because of their gender or sexual identity, but by what they do now as a hiker. Air is 31 and told me they are happily partnered, have a full-time job, a house, and a dog, and want to start a family soon. So long distance through hiking is pretty much a thing of the past but they connect to the outdoors in the way they want to. It's like, how can I do um, big things in a, in a day? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, I think like, uh, let's see, my last big um, hiking thing was I um, walked for 24 hours straight on my um, 30th birthday and I made it uh, 58 miles. So I was trying for 60, but uh, I missed it by a little. But that was fun. You know, what can I do in a day that is just as uh, (laughs) shattering to my ego? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Air Paris, it's been so great talking with you. Thanks for giving me the time today. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe that's just it. We all connect and fit in the way that we can. You can find out more about the Appalachian Trail Conservancy and how you can get involved, as well as the various affinity groups that Shalin mentioned, including Latinos Outdoors, Outdoor Afros, Brown People Camping, among others. I've put links in the show notes, and also a link to some of Ayer's writing for REI. Some of the articles are serious, but some are going to make you laugh, and you might even see yourself in there. Thanks again to today's title sponsor, Gossamer Gear, manufacturers of high-quality, lightweight backpacking gear and accessories, and my choice for thru-hiking. You can save 15% on your next order at gossamergear.com. Just use the code word distance, all one word, distance, and save 15% off your order at gossamergear.com. 
I'm Blissful Hiker, and you've been listening to Walking Distance from the Trek.